Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. The Learning How Evolution Works, it actually does provide us with great insights into human behavior. Uh, I'm going to be talking in terms of what's called, uh, at first, traits. Traits are essentially instances of thinking, uh, perceptions, actions, impulses, and so forth that are um, the very, traits are the very sort of, uh, when we think of Darwin and evolutionary theory, traits are what is uh, the uh, passed down. Uh, along with genes. So traits are heritable, which means they can be passed down through generations. And our traits, we are not only talking about, again, about physiological qualities, such as, you know, uh, the shape of human heads, which became uh, had more and more, over the course of evolution, room for the neocortex. Uh, but we're also talking about behavioral traits, psychological traits, the way we think, the way we perceive the world, the way we act. Uh, traits can have great variety um, from common traits that are prevalent throughout a species to mutations, which means one or very few um, uh, instances of a species actually has the trait. And yet, some mutations, or in fact, all of our traits started out as mutations originally, where only uh, a very few members of our species originally had the traits. Um, so the traits can have a great variety, and um, most importantly, some adapt to our uh, the purpose of evolution better than others. In terms of evolution, that's known as having greater fitness. So, um, these traits that adapt better than other traits can lead to huge changes in species in a very short species, a very short period of time. So, in uh, our species evolution, we have, in a relatively short period of time, become far more cooperative, interdependent with others, and um, far, far less aggressive than we were even uh, 50,000 years ago. Language, which started out as a mutation, has become prevalent in our species and so forth. So, uh, in terms of when we think in terms of uh, 50,000 years, from an evolutionary perspective, that's a blink of an eye, but uh, it's actually um, very, you know, it sounds like a, lot of, uh, a long period, but it's actually very fast that the human species has evolved. And yet, uh, in many ways, our brains haven't evolved quickly enough to match the pace of the world that we live in. And we'll talk specifically about some of the holdovers that 
limit create suffering and make our lives less pleasant or less uh, uh, that compromise our well-being. So before we get there, I want to point out something that's really um, important to understand about uh, evolution, which is that natural selection, and here's where many people uh, have the wrong idea about it, natural selection is not about uh, survival. It's not about reaching old age. It has nothing to do with that. It's about reproduction. That's what evolution is about. It's about passing down genes. So from an evolutionary perspective, evolution does not care that you, if you live to 60 or 70, that you have peace of mind, that you are healthy in your advanced years. It doesn't, in fact, give a, a shit, frankly, about what happens to you after the age where you would pass down your genes by reproducing to another uh, generation. That's all that evolution is about. And so evolution is not, and I'll keep repeating, going back to this, evolution does not care if we are happy or not. And in fact, given the choice, it will choose uh, and it'll produce traits in us that maximize the possibility of reproduction and passing down genes rather than uh, introducing traits that make us happy, fulfilled, or have well-being. Um, let me put it in, essentially traits shaped by evolution are geared towards what's called reproductive fitness. That's what evolution cares about, and a subcategory of that is enhancing our sexual selection, which means that people will, <laughs> in our species, people will select us to reproduce so that we will pass down genes, and that's really all that evolution is about. So, uh, to read one uh, great evolutionary psychologist, and I'll be talking about, from a number of perspectives, Robin Dunbar, Robert Sapolsky, Richard Wright, and Stuart Williams. I'm going to quote Stuart Williams right now. Um, the peacock's tail and the deer's antlers don't promote their owner's survival, but they do have an evolutionary function. Their function is to boost their owner's reproductive success. Most of the beauty and color in nature comes from sexual selection the scent and appearance of flowering plants, the plumage and melodies of songbirds, and the art, music, and humor of Homo sapiens. So all of these traits developed as a way to originally enhance the likelihood of our reproduction. Natural selection isn't about the survival of the fittest, it's about reproduction of the fittest. It's not about our survival, our long-term well-being. It's about the genes that are passed down or the genes that helped us maximize the chances of reproducing. So let's talk about this in specifically useful ways. This creates a bunch of different delusions or misperceptions of the world that made our uh, reproduction more likely, but at the same time didn't benefit us in terms of any well-being, any degree of lasting happiness. 
So one delusion is that we tend to vastly overestimate the pleasure that consuming or acquiring things will bring us. Why is this? In our ancestral history, tools, acquiring tools, acquiring food, acquiring shelter, acquiring uh, clothing maximized our chances of attaining tribal status and reproducing. So as a result, the mesolimbic DA reward pathway rewarded us with massive jolts of dopamine, a pleasure and reward neurotransmitter, every time we accumulate, acquire, or amass things. From an evolutionary perspective of maximizing our chances of reproduction, that makes sense. But in terms of lasting happiness, we'll discuss how it actually does the opposite. It's also to our evolutionary advantage that pleasure doesn't last. Now, why is that? If pleasure didn't evaporate quickly after we acquire or consume things, we wouldn't be impelled to go out and acquire more things that would be to our advantage. We wouldn't be impelled or rewarded for continually amassing more food, more shelter, more tribal advantages. So the dopamine reward that excites and stimulates us always happens before we eat the cookie. After we eat the cookie, very little dopamine. Before we buy the car, every car looks great. And we'll be rewarded with dopamine will stimulate thoughts about how great our, our life will be if we buy a new car. You buy the car, the next thing you know is that we're fixated with all the problems of owning the car. Um, if we want to buy a house, etc., 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 we envision the lasting benefits of things as part of the dopamine reward system, uh, the mesolimbic structures of the brain. We overestimate the amount of pleasure that it will bring. We don't envision the headaches and the dissipation that will follow. So, again, what this boils down to is that it wasn't in, it is not in the uh, structure of evolution to care that we find lasting happiness. In fact, one of the things about pleasure, the way it's structured in the brain, is that it also uh, obfuscates the what's known as the hedonic treadmill, which is uh, by and large, people's baseline happiness doesn't change no matter what, you know, they try to acquire, whether they inherit a vast amount of wealth, whether they suddenly strike it rich in some way. There's been lots of studies that show that people's baseline happiness, in fact, always returns to where it was before because the dopamine is not there to ever encourage us to relax, to feel good about ourselves, to enjoy our life. None of that had any evolutionary purpose. Evolution's purpose was to reward us for consistently feeling that there is something missing, 
that there's something absent from our life, that we need to constantly go out, acquire, achieve, amass more. The second delusion that uh, has been in, wired into the brain due to evolution is that it's important for us to care what others think about us and to be self-conscious about our tribal status. Now, where did that come from? In order to understand it, it's worth uh, reflecting, as uh, in uh, Richard Wright's uh, wonderful book on uh, evolutionary psychology, that the bulk of our species history was spent in hunter-gatherer collectives. In fact, of the roughly 200,000 years of Homo sapien life, the only the last 2,000 was spent outside of or maybe 5,000 was spent outside of hunter-gatherer collectives. So the bulk of our history was spent in very small, largely nomadic clans where you would spend your entire life with maybe five or six other adults. And it was very important that you got along with these five or six other adults. Why? Well, one, you would depend upon them to share resources. Resources were scarce. If other people in your clan didn't like you, you might very well starve because each day that people went out to gather food, there was only a likelihood that maybe one would come back with any food or resources. So it was very important that each member of the group be in good standing. So over the course of evolution, as um, Lieberman shows, the brain was wired in the anterior cingulate cortex with deep concerns about what other people think about us. And so the the good thing about being in our ancestors' hunter-gatherer collectives is that you lived next to those people, so you find out very quickly what they thought about you. If they didn't like you and they kicked you out, it would most likely lead to your death because no other clan would accept you and being on your own, you wouldn't be able to survive. So it was vastly important that you would connect very quickly with anybody who might have a negative feeling about yourself and work it through with them. But guess what? Today we live separate from others. Sometimes we might connect with somebody who lives across country or somebody that lives across town, somebody that we might not come into contact with for a number of weeks. And so we're still living in the brain that cares very deeply about what other people think about us, and yet we don't have the immediate access that we did in the past where we would immediately be able to interact with the person who we were concerned about and essentially find out if we were still in good standing with them. Even more tragically for us today is that we now live in a world where, well, you know, if you go outside, which I go outside every day uh, and walk around the streets, I will see more people in one hour of walking around my neighborhood than my ancestors would see in their entire life. They would again only see the five or six people that were in their clan, and if they ever encountered people from other clans, they would likely become very scared because clans were constantly trying to kill each other. 
and steal their resources. So today we encounter so many people and the brain unfortunately due to the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex is constantly wired to assess and worry about what other people think about us even complete strangers because in the past in our ancestral history of evolution there were no such thing as complete strangers we would run into everybody it was vital to get everyone that we encountered to like us so we are living in holdovers brains that keep us worried needlessly um, and worry about being disliked in the past being disliked once again could lead to being ousted from a clan and thus dying so today it can feel to us that if a complete stranger on the street corner gives us a slight look or if somebody we barely know at a job or whatever gives us a difficult look it can feel like there's something really terrible happening so that's another delusion that is um, foisting us by evolution today if you find out that a friend or a couple of friends are not in fact uh, acting in a way that you consider to be kind, accepting, non-judgmental, you can change your friends. In the course of our evolution, you could not do that. So it is wired in us again to care deeply. Another real drawback of the brains that we find ourselves in that um, no longer makes sense due to the pace and change of the way we live today is that our brains form what's called us and them dichotomies. We unfortunately view the world in terms of our kind and others, people that we other. This is the neural underpinnings, unfortunately, of xenophobia, racism, uh, and all forms of bias. Um, within one-tenth of a second, exposure to the face of someone of a different ethnicity, clinical studies show, activates both the amygdala and the fusiform gyrus, which triggers an uptick of stress. So, uh, same ethnicity faces don't activate the fusiform gyrus. So we have what Sapolsky in his massive, uh, deeply respected book on human behavior notes as rapid automatic biases that are wired into the brain to view the world in terms of us and them. And this was because for most of human history, other clans were dangerous. If you ran into anybody else that dressed, looked differently, was from a different clan in the course of evolution, you might very well be attacked for your resources. So over the course of evolution, it bred this uh, us-them dichotomy, which is very much in the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and other regions of the brain that view constantly people needlessly and uh, as othered. The fourth delusion, and this is going to be the last delusion I discuss, um, is that we should trust our gut feelings. And you, one very frequently hears people saying, well, 
I wished I had trust my gut on this one. I wished I had trust my gut before I bought that car or dated that person. But actually, gut feelings can be just as untrustworthy as they can be trustworthy. The purpose of good and bad feelings through evolution was to motivate approaching that which is familiar and avoiding that which is unfamiliar. Also, it was to get us to approach things that in the past were good for us, but in that and avoid things in the past were bad for us. So, let's look at a classic example of this. In the past, up until very recently, up until really the last 100 years of our species, anything that tasted sweet was good for you. It wouldn't give you diabetes. It was actually meant that it was probably nutritious and wholesome. So due to evolution, the human brain is wired to essentially reward us for eating things that taste sweet. Well, guess what? Within the last 100 years where sugar has been refined and placed into practically every food imaginable, now we have the rampant scourge of diabetes, which is because our brains are wired to always think that things that are sugar, that taste like sugar or taste sweet are good, and things that taste sweet reward us once again with dopamine. The right hemisphere and the midbrain gravitate to the known, not the unfamiliar, which made sense in environments where anything unfamiliar could kill us. On the other hand, today that means that people who grow up in family systems where there's not a lot of love or where there's unavailable attachment gravitate again and again and again towards the same because their brain has been wired to gravitate towards the familiar, even if the, formi the familiar is not good for us. So, I could go on. This is one of uh, the many topics which I can just ramble on forever. But the gist of these, uh, this talk is that our brains were shaped by evolution, that where we now wind up with traits that no longer make any sense in the world in which we live. It no longer makes any sense that everything that tastes sweet should reward us with dopamine and want more. It no longer makes sense that we should view the world strictly in terms of uh, people from different countries, different ethnicities, are them versus people that look the same are us. It no longer makes any sense that we should gravitate towards amassing as much pleasure as we possibly can in terms of accumulating things because that actually all it does is create a hedonic treadmill where we seek to accumulate more and more and we don't get any real reward from it. From it. And it certainly doesn't make any sense now that we worry constantly about what other people think about us. All of these 
are evolutionary holdovers which in fact cause significant suffering in life and don't bring us any lasting well-being. Now fortunately our species has a capability that many species doesn't which is known as cognitive flexibility. Cognitive flexibility means that we can actually override our programming we can inhibit what's known as bottom-up evolutionarily shaped impulses. So unlike my, my cats really struggle to override some of their evolutionary impulses that no longer make any sense. Uh, hilariously, if you ever watch your cats in litter boxes, they will very often try to uh, clean imaginary areas on the wall and stuff like that, or bury their turds using imaginary things, because in the past, for their species, or probably still today for their species, it was important to cover up the markings of where they were, because they could be attacked by other species. But my cats now live indoors. There's no possibility of another species uh, attacking them. So it's an evolutionary holdover that's no longer really making any sense. But in human life, uh, it's very important for us to develop cognitive flexibility, which allows us to inhibit old, outdated impulses. What does that? Well, that's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That's the region of your brain that allows you to say no whenever somebody pushes chocolate or sugar in front of you. It allows you to say, hey, wait a second. I know that if I ate that, it would taste good, but it's not good for me in the long term. Therefore, I'll say no. That's the region of your brain that lights up when you get caught up too long in worrying about what somebody thinks about you and then um, you finally say, you know what, fuck it, there are other people in the world, I don't need to obsess about what this one person thinks about you. It's your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that allows you to set healthy long-term goals that in our evolution made no sense, but today mean terrific sense. For example, uh, practicing meditation, which allows you to shrink your amygdala so that you're less fear-based. It allows you to focus attention on what's known as salient stimuli, which is actually safety cues around you that will deactivate panic attacks. Uh, it's not an evolutionary evolution's benefit, of passing down genes that we're able to do that, but it makes all the difference in our being happy. Um, w the way that is most efficient for us to override the wiring of our brain and to literally change the gray matter so that the amygdala shrinks and the functional connections between the fear center of the brain and the prefrontal cortex become diminished and also to deactivate the excessive influence of the craving brain, the mesolimbic circuits of the brain, is through the ability to pause, to stop before we act, to bring our intention to the feelings in the body that are impelling us 
to act in a way that is primed by evolution, to allow the feelings to arise and pass, and then to engage alternative strategies. And all of that is another word for mindfulness. Mindfulness, the, the, essentially the practice that the Buddha introduced of pausing, bringing attention internally into the body, noticing feelings, Veda Nusati, learning to allow feelings to arise and pass, um, is the greatest single tool of allowing us to inhibit the now archaic impulses of the brain that make our lives uh, less fulfilling. There's a wonderful final teaching I'll go into before I lead us in the meditation. Great uh, story I love of um, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, great Buddhist teacher, was giving a talk and somebody in the class, I love, I mentioned this before, somebody in the class rose their hand uh, during the question period and said, uh, so, Ajahn, I've been struggling with eating donuts before I go into work. Uh, my job isn't that fulfilling, and every day I can't stop. I can't help but go in and buy a couple of donuts, and it's not good for me, and it's not rewarding. And actually, I actually feel worse after I eat them because after the initial spike, then there's the depressive part that follows. And so they said to Samato, maybe the best thing for me to do would be to just walk in such a way to work that I didn't pass the donut store. And Samato said, well, actually, that's not what is in your best interest. That's not what the Buddha taught, and that won't help you. All you'll do is find something else. Um, what I would suggest is allow yourself to go to work the normal way, and when you reach the donut store, allow yourself to stand in front of it and allow yourself to experience the feelings propelling you to want to eat the donut and be with those sensations those that what's called the vedana the all the feeling in your body the salivation the yearning the want the wanting to pull the donut close and to bite into it to observe those feelings to be with them, to allow them to arise and pass. And then every day, insert a gradually longer pause of observing before you eat the donut. Then you can go in and eat the donut. So spend one minute being mindful, then the next day two minutes, then the next day three minutes. So you're inserting a mindful pause before we engage in an evolutionarily instilled behavior. And over time, by the time you get to seven or eight minutes, you'll find that the need to eat the donut will have arisen and passed, and then you'll be go, able to go into work, inhibit that impulse, and to feel much better about your life. So that's what we're going to be doing in our practice today. We're actually going to be practicing with some of these evolutionary keys that have been instilled and we're going to be using mindfulness awareness to essentially insert a pause to be with the feeling so that we're not inclined to act on them.
So thank you for listening and find a really comfortable seated position. And closing the eyes and just allowing the, uh, the awareness to be reeled back in from the world around you. And to bring your attention back in through the eyes and then imagine your attention, which used to be on the world around you, has now come into your body and it's first becoming aware of the sensations in your head. It's noticing if there's any tension in the forehead or in the micro muscles around the eyes. And this awareness is just noting where there's any contraction or stress and if you find any just take a moment imagine you could use your mind to soothe those areas relax Send loving thoughts to any area that feels tight or imagine that you could just relax the forehead, relax the micro muscles around the eyes. Continuing down to the mouth, if you feel there's any clenching, grinding, release, any tightness there. Try to soften the tongue, allow it to just relax in an area that's comfortable. Bringing awareness to the throat, releasing any contraction there, any tightness there. Gradually moving the awareness into first the shoulders, and if you if the shoulders feel like they're they're tight and um, activated, just 
gently roll them back and drop the shoulders so that uh, you leave a little bit more room in the chest for the breath. And then a nice full inhalation through the nose and filling up the chest and then a very long gradual out-breath from the mouth, long exhalations activate the parasympathetic nervous system along with acetic choline down modulates any degree of uh, down modulates hypervigilance anxiety and so forth and then continuing down your body using awareness as a spotlight to bring attention to different areas and wherever you encounter any stress just using either the energy of the breath or the mind's ability to influence the body to release any tightness for example in the belly noting if there's any even the slightest degree of, of tightness or holding let's just see if we can release that so we're inclining towards a really soft belly And then continuing with the arms or the legs and just allow your awareness to be a really compassionate, roving, caring, soothing, appreciative spotlight that brings compassion wherever it shines its light in the body.
trying to release the mind of any need to go anywhere, do anything, resolve any issue, figure out, solve. Just come to a place where we can come to a complete uh, stand still, pause, where we land in our life completely and just appreciate the body that has been keeping us alive. Where we've... the need to get anywhere, to reach sometime in the future, is put aside where we can completely be with our actual lived experience without any sense that it's incomplete or lacking or missing anything. Ability to appreciate just the miracle of attaining consciousness in a human form.
So at this point, um, let's allow ourselves to practice some of the tools we discussed. Uh, like or invite you to bring to mind first an example of uh, the outdated reward system. So bring to mind something that right now we kind of have a uh, maybe not addictive but a penchant towards for some of us it could be a certain kind of food we eat when we're stressed the need to take a drink in a social setting if there's still any social settings going on in the world or For some of us, the we might feel impelled to check out with uh, Netflix, video games, or uh, uh, perusing social media. Some people even uh, dial unhappiness by looking up social media of ex-romantic partners or people that are no longer in our life. And all of these are examples of evolutionary prime behaviors. They don't serve any purpose, but Originally, back in the recesses of our ancestral history, constantly seeking rewards led to reproductive fitness. So today we're now stuck with bizarre behaviors that don't necessarily um, make our lives fulfilling or enriching. So while you bring to mind this behavior that's primed, uh, see if you can feel in your body how your these old systems of the brain reward you for these behaviors that actually no longer bring any real benefit. So it's akin to visualizing the donut before we eat it. Just visualize the donut and what do we feel before we eat the donut or the cookie or the we buy the thing on Amazon or we uh, turn on Netflix what is that feeling in the body that impels us towards these addictive behaviors and just see if you can feel the underpinnings, all of the, f the feelings are, have been primed by ancient structures of the brain. And then relax, breathe into or just allow these feelings to pass.
inserting a mindful pause, as it were. Let's try another example, this time of um, the evolutionary primed behavior of worrying what other people think about us, caring what other people think or say about us. So bring to mind someone who's uh, regard towards us as in some way led to thoughts maybe somebody who we might be a friend or somebody who uh, is an adversary in some sense or somebody we're in conflict or competition if it's there and just or somebody we feel has an unfair advantage. Sometimes in a family there could be unresolved grudges and just bring that person to mind and just note the primed feelings that encourage that act as the underpinnings with this kind of repetitive ideations, worrying, thinking, or becoming caught up with people who don't like us rather than just letting it go, moving on. What are the feelings in the body? Does the stomach get tight? Does the chest feel hollow? Does the does the mind start to feel jumpy or heavy or does the forehead feel contracted or tight? Let's just locate the affect state, the, the feelings beneath that impel us 
towards this behavior, behavior being worrying about what others think about us. So see if you can find an area in the body to relax. When the body relaxes, the mind does too. It's very difficult to worry what's going to happen to us or worry about what other people think about us. If your body, if your belly is soft, if your breath is very soft and subtle in the release, if your chest is open and feels warm, if your shoulders are released, if your jaw is clenched, thoughts follow what happens in the in the body and if the body's relaxed then almost as if at times by magic the thoughts begin to disperse settle So, in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl, and uh, hopefully these practices are those you can go on to practice in your regular meditation, or if not in your meditation, you can use these practices in life where you feel yourself impelled towards actions or choices that you realize are no longer in your best interest. So, thank you for your practice. Um, just a couple notes. I'm a uh, Buddhist pastor. I do everything by donation. If you'd like to support my work, the Venmo is D H A R M A Dharma P U N X P U N X N Y C, and or the PayPal button's on the website, which is the same Dharma Punks N Y C. So thank you for your support. That's what allows me to do the both teaching and the counseling. And um, so 
doing a benefit for um, a wonderful institute that has hosted uh, us many times in the past, Garrison. Uh, all, all institutions right now are struggling, obviously institutions that host um, yoga and mindfulness retreats. So my good friend Jamo, Jessica, and myself are doing a benefit for them uh, day long and July 26th. So if you'd like to support that and also just hear what good old Jamo and I are going to say, we were originally going to have a retreat this time of year but uh, of course no retreats yeah if you if you'd like to uh, look into Garrison Institute July 26 I'll also post the the links on Facebook and on the website so uh, 